0: Well, let us turn together now to Hebrews chapter eleven. Hebrews chapter eleven. Hebrews chapter eleven. And when you get there, I should have probably did this first. And this was a, a thought that has popped in my mind. Um. Hebrews chapter 11, but also grab a Pillars of Truth, a copy of the Pillars of Truth that should be in your pew, and turn to page 36 with me, page 36 is chapter 14 of the second London Confession of Faith as it deals with the doctrine of saving faith, and I want to particularly draw your attention uh, as part of my introduction into the message today to paragraph number 2, page number 36. Of the Pillars of Truth, which is chapter 14 of the London Confession of Faith, paragraph 2. Talking about saving faith, it picks up in paragraph 2 and says this, By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself. And also, notice what else faith does. And also, apprehendeth an excellency therein above all other writings and all things in the world. We see there, of course, the utility of saving faith Enabling us to see the excellency of God's word above all other writings and all other wisdom. Amen. This nicely sets up for us today Hebrews chapter 11. And I hope that you see that the Bible does indeed support these old biblical truths that the church has long held to. Look with me here at Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. Verses 1 to 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. (coughs) May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Beloved, I think all of you would agree with me that the Christian life and the pilgrim journey has never been promised to be easy or without its difficulties. The Lord Jesus made this very clear to those who followed Him in John 15.8 when He told them, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. This truth of the world hating us, this truth of us as Christian pilgrims having difficulties in our lives, this was certainly understood by these first century Christians who this letter, this epistle of the Hebrews was written to. Remember that they were Hebrew Christians who believed in the long preached gospel and accepted that Jesus was the Messiah that the long ancient religion of Judaism pointed to. And subsequently, we learn, In chapter 10, specifically in verses 32 and 34, they suffered greatly. They suffered greatly for acknowledging Christ as Messiah. It is because of these harsh realities which surround us as Christians that we observe the inspired writer in the book of Hebrews desired that they would have a proper and a working knowledge of saving faith. A proper and a working knowledge that would equip them, that would enable them to endure in their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah until the very end. He wanted them to have an enduring faith. To begin to unpack for them, to help them understand what is a proper understanding and a working application of an enduring faith. We learned, he said in verse 1 of this chapter, he started off by teaching them faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And after working through this during our last message in this chapter, we rightly concluded that the faith being described here in verse 1 could be paraphrased like this. It is a faith that is a confident assurance in God's faithfulness concerning the realities that we hope for And it is a full persuasion of all of the things promised which we cannot see. This is the type of faith which, if it's properly grasped, if it's properly understood, he knew would help them and also help us to keep all persecutions, all trials, all the things Ethel and Naomi that I was teaching you this morning of of working out the difficulties and the messiness of sin in our lives, he knew that if they had that proper understanding of the faith that he was defining in verse number one, that Ethiel, they would be able to pick up the pieces whenever sin comes in and makes a wreck of things. They could, in other words, put the puzzle back together, put the pieces back together and endure unto the end. Well, today we begin with verse number two. And it's a long section that begins in verse number 2 and goes all the way to verse number 40. And It's one of the longest sections in Hebrews. And now what he's going to do is he's going to use Old Testament saints as examples who exemplified such confident and enduring faith and they preserved unto the end. I gave you the road map. In your sermon notes there, we're still sticking to that roadmap. Verse number one, the faith was defined. We've already looked at that. And now we're entering into the section where enduring faith is exemplified. Well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to go into this section where Old Testament saints are going to be held forth and commended to us to follow their example? Well, first of all, we're going to look at verse number two and verse number three. The first heading is going to be considering the report of the elders. We see that in verse 2. And also, what I thought was very interesting, and I think very helpful for us today, is in verse number 3, this enduring faith that He divined in verse number 1 actually serves, very importantly, as we just read in our confession of faith, as a foundation for all our epistemology, all of our knowledge, all of our understanding. And you're going to get real excited when you see that. It's it's the word of God explaining to us how our faith is applied to equip us to make it unto the end. Let's look here at verse number two together and consider our first heading, the report of the elders. Verse two says, for by it, what? The faith described in verse number one, the elders obtained a good report. We immediately see in this verse That despite all of the negative things that this inspired writer has said about the Jews, particularly between chapters 3 and and chapter 5 of them during the wilderness generation, where they evidenced a lot of rebellion against God, despite the negative things that he has said about them, despite the things that we're learning as we're going through the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, we read, even today... That as they're asking for the word of the Lord so that they can obey it, they still reject it. Even though the Old Testament is packed full of a majority of the Jews who rebelled against God, we see here in verse number two, not all of them did. Not all of them did. He, ad- he identifies these Old Testament saints that exemplified the faith defined in verse number one as the elders. Well, who are the elders? Well, don't confuse this. He's not talking in a sense of church officers here. But as you've seen in your sermon notes in the Greek, he's simply talking about the elderly ones, the old ones, the aged ones. And he's talking about from Abel at the very beginning of world history, created history, all up until the time that he wrote this letter, he's talking about those faithful elders, those faithful old ones. They obtained a good report. Well, let's consider their report that they obtained. Regarding these elders, he says, this phrase, they obtained a good report. Now, one Greek scholar, he offers that this phrase you see in your notes should be considered as a theological passive, a theological passive phrase, indicating that it's much more than just a witness recorded in Scripture. It is the personal witness of God actively recognizing the life, faithful, witnessed life of one of his children's. Consider another theological passive, okay, to help us work through this. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch, we'll get to this example eventually, was translated... You can, some of your translations will have taken. Enoch was translated or taken so that he should not see death and was not found because God had taken him for, before his translation. He had this testimony, this report, this witness that he pleased God. And so what the Greek scholars see here is that just as Enoch was passive in this translation... He was not active. God came and acted upon him. God recognized his witness. God recognized his testimony. God recognized Enoch despite the difficulties. You remember Enoch in the days of Noah, right? Preaching to the the wayward world that surrounded him. He stood in the gates and he still proclaimed it despite all the difficulties, despite no doubt the mockings and the persecutions. God saw that report. And God actively acted upon Enoch, took him up, Enoch was not active in this at all. He was passive. It was a passive event, a theological passive witness of Enoch. Enoch and all the other elders that's being talked about here who had this good report. They were very powerfully withstanding all the trials and afflictions in their everyday lives confidently trusting in the God who is faithful, verse 1, constantly believing in the things they could not see because of God's witness in the past. They were simply being the people of God that God equipped them and called them to be. It was passive. God's bearing witness and testimony of them was Him actively recognizing their good report. And so as you see in your notes, the good report here. Ought not to be understood as some high opinion that is just remembered about them in a memorial sense by their descendants. No, 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 no. It was the honorable record which God witnessed of them. God bore witness of their testimony. God bore witness to their good report. This causes us, I think, as you see in your sermon notes, for us to consider our report. Verse number two is dealing with the example of the elders, beginning with Abel, Enoch, forward. But beloved, many times in the scriptures, the idea of a person's report, witness, and testimony comes to the surface. You don't have to turn there, but to just kind of flush this out, I'm going to turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And I'm going to go to verse 21 where you have in your notes. Now, the context here of where a person's witness or a person's report comes to the surface is recorded here where Jesus is doing the parable of the kingdom of heaven. And the good master gives the talents and then the good master goes away, right? And then one has five, one has two, and one has one. That's the context. So I'm just going to read it verses 14 down to uh, 21. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is a man traveling into a far country. He called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several ability and straightway he took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents, he went and he traded with the same and made them other five talents. Good job. Verse 17, and likewise... He that had received two, he also gained another two. But he that had received the one, he went and he digged in the earth, and he hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord, or the master of those servants, he comes back, and he reckoneth with them. Wants to know what they've been doing, why he's been gone. And so, that he had received five talents, came, and he brought another five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest under me five talents, Behold, I have gained besides them five more talents. And as you see in your sermon notes, his master said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Notice with me in that verse 21. Notice with me that the the first reward of this faithful testimony, this faithful report, this faithful witness of this servant. Notice with me the first testimony is the Lord's praise. Well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Dear friends, as we're reflecting back on all of the elders, beginning with Abel. As we're looking down the long history as we're going to enter into chapter 11 at these elders, these old ones, these aged ones, these tested ones who obtained a good report. Friends, let us remember that there is no greater witness regarding an individual that it ever could be conceived of than their creator God, their savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. On that great day, looking at them saying, well done, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But now consider this, before you sling yourself off into the abyss saying, <laughs> I'm more like the one talent person. You know, I'm, I'm that person. What was the basis of the praise for the guy who had the five and the guy who had the two? What was that before you fall into a ditch of apathy? Well, as you see in your sermon notes, the basis of the praise is that the servant would simply use whatever God gave him in the act of employment of advancing his kingdom. We know in Scripture that God teaches a truth, that he equips every single one of us with something. Something. There is something that every single person in this building today has been given by God as a talent to be used. And all he simply says is, I gave it to you. You're really good at it. You like to do it. Now go employ it for the advancement of my kingdom. You won't do it perfectly. You're going to start off like I did with the Baptist Witness magazine, thinking that every Baptist church in the state of Indiana wanted to learn about the doctrines of grace, spent a lot of money, sent it out, and found out that they selectively don't want to hear about that. But I didn't give up, I like to do it. I kept doing it. You see, you're going to mess up, you're going to learn, trial and error. but on that day, he's going to say, "Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You used what I gave you, whatever means it was, and you did your best to faithfully employ it unto the expansion of my gospel and my kingdom. Look with me in your sermon notes at Ephesians 2, 8-10 as we're still considering our report. And what was it that made these people, these elders, these aged ones so special? Well, friends, it wasn't really a whole lot. What I'm trying to get you to see is they were everyday guys and gals who were given something by God, they were ordained to do something by God, and they just fit faithfully kept their heads down and were consistent in doing it. Whether it was fatherhood, motherhood, uh, whether it was a pastor, whether it was an elder, uh, whether it was just someone who did something in evangelism, whatever it was, that's all it is. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. The reason I'm drawing your attention to this verse is because if you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, Pastor Doug, you just don't understand. I'm really not good at anything. Um, I know what you're saying, how Romans 12, 6 through 8, and Ephesians 4, 11, the Bible talks about people being enabled or gifted with certain interests and things of that nature, but, but you just don't know me. Well, you're not an exception. You're not an exception to the things I'm speaking of. Each born-again Christian is described here in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Look what it says with me. By grace are you saved through faith. Does anyone raise their hand and say they're an exception to that? No, you don't. You want to say amen to that, right? It's talking about you, Christian. And that i not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Your salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. For we, that's speaking to us all, notice the we there, were his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, all of us, unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. All those elders that he's talking about in verse number two, Abel, Enoch, so forth and so on, God had ordained a good work for them to do. God today has ordained a good work for you to do. And according to this passage, each one of us are God's workmanship. Notice in Ephesians 2, because this is key, we're created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now, I love that part of this passage, and here's why. Because whenever I'm trying to challenge you as my brother and sister in the faith, in the household of God, to do with the simple means that you have, that I believe the Bible has gifted you with, has enabled you with, has prepared you for, I don't have to feel as though I'm manipulating you or putting a guilt trip on you. And you don't have to me either. Why? Because I believe you're created in Christ Jesus. I believe that with your profession of faith, you're saying, I am a sinner who is saved by grace, not of my works. God has birthed within me a new life. He has birthed within me a new worldview. He has birthed within me an entirely different understanding. And so therefore, you're created in Christ Jesus. And if that's true, then the Apostle Paul here, inspired by God the Spirit, says, great. Now I know this individual has from eternity past been ordained to do something, a good work. You see, what I'm saying here is that whatever you're going to offer with your talent, in order that God will actively see on that last day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done. You used what I gave you. That's all I was asking. What I can say is, is that you will do this not out of legal obedience. No, because you were created in Christ Jesus, knowing that you're a sinner saved by grace. You do it out of what we call evangelical obedience, evangelical obedience. It is an obedience as the the, the servants we just read about, as the elders of old... Abel, Enoch, Moses, Abraham, David, so on and so on. It is the evangelical obedience that's motivated not out of slavish fear, but a childlike obedience. In gratitude and love for the heavenly father who has what? Saved your soul. You want to do it. You're looking for ways to do it. Yeah, you get discouraged sometimes, but you don't give up. You keep going. Dear ones, Just like the faithful servant who is spoken of in Matthew chapter 25, just like the elders that are cataloged for us in Hebrews chapter 11, we whose hearts are circumcised by the gospel of Christ, we serve, we work not for the praises of men, but according to Romans 2.29 for the praise and the report of God. Amen. That's why we do what we do and my prayer is for all of us including myself that at times when I get disappointed at times where I get weary at times where I feel like you know what this isn't getting the attention I think it deserves this work or it's not gaining the steam uh, that I think it should that we would remember that we would just simply be consistent and faithful to what it is we love to do for the glory of God and the rest is in his hands friends the rest is in his hands. So, the report that they obtained was God looking upon them and seeing that they were being faithful in their confidence to him to do what he had called them to do, no matter what come upon them. But prior to moving to particular examples, beginning with verse 4 uh, with Abel, he does something in verse 3 that I want you to see. He does something in verse 3 that's rather significant. And now we're moving into this part of the message where this faith in verse 1 actually enables all of these elders and enables you to move forward in the application, in the employment of what he's given you. It lays down for you a foundation of all epistemology. This is what I believe we've seen in verse number 3. He says here, got to get back to it. He says in verse number 3. I got to hear my notes. He's, notice with me. He says, through faith, we understand that the worlds, the universe were framed and created by the word of God so that things which were seen were not made of things which do appear or that are visible. Some of the translations will have through faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God. He's doing something here in verse number 3 by drawing with the word we. He's drawing him and this original audience into the same stream of the elders that he's talked about in verse number 2. He uses the word we. Through faith, we understand, we all understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Now, this is something immediately that we all share in common as the people of God whether you're able or whether you're Eddie. We all share by the utility of the faith that's described in verse number one and understanding sometimes it can be shaken. Sometimes we know it can be uh, tempted and, 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 and sometimes we're tempted to, to maybe question things like that. But fundamentally, that faith, that confidence in God, it comes with it, this bedrock understanding that he created the universe. He's the creator of all things. And so this is what we share in common. You see in your sermon notes, the understanding. You see there in the Greek, it carries with the idea to perceive with the mind. This phrase, it's translated, we understand. It carries with it the idea to have, to possess understanding. In this passage, I believe, we are being shown something that is vital to our understanding of the full scope and the full power of the faith that is gifted by God to the believer which is intended to help them endure to the end. And what I mean is this, that from this phrase, through faith, that's the utility, through that, we understand. This direct connection with the faith that's given to us presents for us here in verse number 3, a truth which lays the foundation of all knowledge. Through faith, we, the people of God, who endure to the end, we have a knowledge, we have an understanding, and this lays the groundwork from which we will learn, we will filter all other things that are presented to us. What is epistemology? It's a big word, kids. If you have your sermon notes, you'll see. It's just an ancient Greek word, episteme, which is knowledge, and ology, which is the theory of knowledge. Epistemology is just a theory of knowledge. This is the category of philosophy that is concerned with questions such as, how do we know what we know? Philosophically, you can ask the question, what does it mean to say that we know anything at all? How do we justify things that we say are just? How do we know that we truly know? Through faith, the text is teaching, we understand. Through faith, we have the utility, we have the tool to gauge and lay a foundation for all things that we seek to answer those questions by. I just said that this verse, if you caught it, Because it's an audacious statement. I said that this verse presents a truth that lays the foundation of all epistemology. All knowledge. And I intentionally included the word all. Because notice with me that the context in verse 3. Is dealing with everything that exists. The world. And thereby I feel justified and warranted. To say that what the Scripture is talking about here in verse thirteen or verse 3, the understanding, it is not to be viewed as a subset of knowledge that can be compared or is equal with other categories of knowledge. No, the context is we understand in the context of the whole universe, everything that exists, that God brought it all into existence from no, from Nothing. So this foundation, this understanding, Sarah, what the Bible takes a position on is that it can only be rightly understood, it can only be firmly stood upon through faith. And the faith is defined in verse 1. A faith that's not emotionally something that I conjure up with myself, but it's faith in God who has demonstrated Himself faithful And through that understanding, I gain a true foundation for all knowledge. That's the position of the scriptures. This verse, the Holy Spirit is communicating to us that through faith we understand. And so the proper deduction would be that without faith, verse number one type faith. There can be no understanding. There can be no understanding. Now, let's be fair, right? On one hand, this is an absolute preposition that verse number three is demanding that we accept. That you can only have true knowledge, true understanding about the universe around you by faith. God revealing that to you. But let's be fair. There are some things that men who lack faith that they can hold, right? That they can hold to. For instance, there can be a great consensus among men about a particular idea or a theory. However, without biblical faith, there is the Bible teaches. And we see it witnessed around us all the time. Even though there's a great consensus about a theory or an idea, because of the deprivation and the limits to man's own, his own fallen mind, he lacks, he will never obtain true understanding. Children, you live in a day and age that is much different than the culture, the Western culture was a 100 years ago. What I mean is, is that in our culture right now, on the surface, it seems as though the majority consensus amongst the scientific community is that there's a worldview that presents a universe that just resulted in a big bang. And so, in other words, according to this worldview, this understanding of our existence, young ones, it's suggesting that out of complete chaos and over a span of billion and billions of years, that highly sophisticated developed organisms came together, and eventually resulted in who you are today. So where we're at right now in America, and largely this is what's taught in our universities and our public school institutions. Again, this is much different than we were 100 years ago. Just 100 years. Their understanding, without faith, has a consensus that it's a fact that all of these chalk particles you see up here, you you, you kids, you come up here and you play on the chalkboard, and you know that when I do, when I take this, it's, this is the talk, and I do this, and there's fragments falling. See all those little fragments? We can let those pile up right here, right? That worldview without faith would have you to try to try to convince you and try to make you believe that we could sit here and we could go like this for a billion years if we could live that long. And that somehow or another, some way, all of those little particles are going to put themselves back together and become this piece of chalk again. And not only that, but then create me who's going to use it. You see, that's the consensus, that's the worldview of individuals void of faith. And I hope even in the children's mind, as you just saw that, I know for the adults the conversation of evolution is much more complex. But in theory, fundamentally, That is the claim of the Big Bang Theory. Complete chaos comes organized, highly developed organisms that result in who we are today. Even to the young ones, that seems completely absurd. There's not one scientist that advances this worldview claim that ever says that they were there at the very beginning to see that happening. There's not one scientist who claims that they possess a written record That archives, year by year, seeing the particles coming together. And they say they have that. They they admit we don't have that. But nonetheless, they share a consensus that it's a fact. You see, that consensus is their understanding. That is their worldview. And it's void of faith. That's why they can believe that. That's why when you got a man standing in front of you, and he says, I am a woman, you totally see why they say that. They would have no ability to understand. Their epistemology is predicated upon a foundation that has a perception that we all through natural processes void of any kind of intelligent intervention or design just come about. Now when we stand back and we look at their claims, we see that what they actually have is an unprovable theory regarding their origin. And really, I know they don't like to say this, those without faith who hold to these consensus ideas, even though they're a majority, they have a faith system. Their system really is a—it's—it's—it's—it's it's based upon faith. And it's inseparably wedded to the rejection that there is anything higher and above in an authority position over man. And this is important for us to remember. They don't take that position of removing God from the equation of their understanding because the evidence warrants it or demands it. They take that position because it allows them to be justified in their moral or rather immoral choices. They don't have to be accountable, you see, before God. And they prove, really, as you see in your notes, through this working out of a knowledge apart and separated from the one true living God in faith, They represent Romans 1, 19 to 21, which says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made. Even his eternal power and his God in his existence, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were they thankful but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish hearts was darkened. The more time goes on from the very beginning of this type of worldview that all of us are experiencing, especially our children, with the more time that goes on, we see, when I say we, that is verse number three, those we through faith who have understanding, we see just indeed how utterly darkened and absurd these theories are and these worldviews are. For instance, I have in your notes, this was a profound bestseller book, perhaps you've heard about it, called Darwin's Black Box. This was a popular book that was published back in 1996 by Michael J. Behe. Professor Behe is a professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. And in this book, Behe presents what he calls a theory of irreducible complexity. Don't ask me to try to explain it. I'll just ask you to go read the book. But basically, you boil it down. And Behe argues, as a biochemist, that the very presence of irreducible complexity in many biochemical systems indicates that they must be the result of some intelligent design rather than evolutionary processes. Again, as we're moving forward in time and our knowledge is expanding, we keep seeing the evidence doesn't demand the false so-called knowledge. But no, it it demands that there is a one true living God who created all things, right? Consider with me where we're at in human history. As we're standing here at Hebrews 11 and the authors wanting them in the first century and us here in the 21st century to look back at the, all of ancient history, consider where we are right now with knowledge. Perhaps you know this or you've heard of what's called the human knowledge doubling curve. And basically what this is, this is the doubling curve, meaning how quickly human knowledge doubles in, 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 in its acceleration. For instance, in the year 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately every 100 years. It took 100 years for our knowledge of what we know to catch up with things that were forgotten or maybe we want to recapture and add to our current knowledge, right? It took 100 years to do that. By the end of the year 1945, according to the data that I have in my studies, that rate of doubling our human knowledge took every 25 years. So you see the rapid growth. But as of today, largely owning to access to information through the internet, the worldwide web, the human knowledge doubling curve occurs every 12 hours. The knowledge of the human race basically is doubling, retrieving, gathering, resourcing every 12 hours, all human knowledge that's ever existed. I only mentioned this. Because getting closer to the psalm quotation in your notes, with the continued ability of our increased knowledge that the Lord allows us to exercise, it demands, because of our more in-depth understanding of the human body, because of our more in-depth knowledge of the cosmos surrounding us, it demands... That when we look at the cosmos, we declare with the psalmist inspired by the Holy Spirit that the heavens declare thy glory of God and the skies show forth your handiwork. It demands that. It doesn't demand that we look at it and believe that silliness. Or looking at the human body, it demands that we say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made marvelous, O God, are thy works. Friends, these foundational declarations of truth about the cosmos, about us as people, relating to the intelligent design of the universe, to the wonderful design of our human bodies can only rightly be understood in verse 3 and appreciated and accepted and further advanced by those who possess faith. Now, I know the secular community doesn't like to hear that. But as we get closer and closer to the doubling of human knowledge and we have men standing in front of us telling us that they are women, we see the validity of verse number three shine all the more, amen? Amen. We do have the correct epistemology. We can say with the ancient elders of old that it declares His glorious handiwork. You're rejecting, you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, friend. It's becoming obvious to everyone who has a shred of logical, reasonable thinking. Dear ones, I think one application of this understanding of the inability of the darkened minds to really perceive and to understand the world around them can be applied in this way. We know, and in fact, we're commanded in Scripture to give an answer for the hope that lies within. We are to be apologists for the truth. We are to debate. We're to stand at the gates and to argue for the truth of God's word. And there certainly is a place for apologetics. There certainly is a place for rational deduction and use of rhetoric in talking with non-believers. But at the very, very end of the day, what we see here is that it takes a supernatural work of God's Spirit to change a person's heart for them to get the understanding that it can only come by faith. And so, church, for all of our preaching, for all of our discipling of our children, for all of our you know, endeavors as the church with the unreached world and with the, you know, the, 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 those who are lost in the world, if we are not praying for the Spirit of God to do what only He can do, they will still remain in an understanding and a darkened state of mind. We must pray as the church of Christ to God open their hearts and give them the eyes to see. The eyes to see. Apart from the supernatural work of God upon their understanding, all of our clever arguments will fall to the ground. We must preach, but we, almost, we also must pray. We often talk in the Christian church about how God transforms the heart of a person through the gospel. And what we mean by this is it's a total transformation of their mind, including their understanding and their worldview. And so establishing that through faith, we understand, right? That's the foundation of our epistemology. That's the foundation. Faith is that. Notice with me, as you see in your notes, what's the basis of this foundation? It's the belief here, as you see in verse 3, that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. In theology, this is called creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing. But how is this the basis of the foundation? You guys know I'm in construction, and the, 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 the concrete footer is the true base. The blocks that we come and lay on that is the foundation. And so the faith that we're talking about in verse number one, it's the foundation. It's the foundation of our epistemology. We know and we profess that God did all of this. But what's underneath that? That he did it from nothing. He did it from absolutely nothing. That's the real footer. That's the real foundation. Now this helps us to consider it in this way, what we've learned up until this point. Look at your sermon notes. How does this serve as a basis of our epistemology which will be utilized in a working application in our lives as christians to endure to the end well first of all remember who it was that was the creator it was jesus christ jesus christ we were told if you recall you have it in your sermon notes in hebrews 1 2 he was the person in the godhead that the father chose to bring all things into existence John 1 3 echoes this, as you have in your notes. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Psalms 33 6 again, a witness from the elders of this truth. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And so, when we are trying to have this working knowledge of our faith, Uh, It's application in our life to help us endure the end. We not only understand that God made all things from nothing, but he He did it through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the nuance, you see, that's in that foundation down there. That Christ is the one who made all things. That He was the vessel through which the power, the immaculate ability of God from nothing spoke all things into existence. Another part of that then organically moves to its purpose. Why was Christ? It was for His glory. Revelations 4.11, as you have in your sermon notes, shows us this. Thou art worthy, O Lord, speaking to Christ on the throne to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and they were created. Romans 11.36 echoes this. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. When we know and we understand Christ's involvement, Christ's place as God in the creation and the purpose of that creation, it's fundamentally important in our epistemology because it brings us great encouragement, as you see at the last point there. We, like Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 26 can affirm that we lift up our eyes on high. And behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out of their host by number? He calls them all by name, by the greatness of His might. For that He is strong in power, not one that fails. When we understand Christ is the Creator. We understand the purpose that He created all things. Friends, now as we're facing trials and afflictions, along with the elders, the old ones, the aged ones, We understand this can bring me great encouragement because according to Romans 8.28, no matter what happens, it's all for the good of those who love Christ. That's what's under our feet in verse number three. Through faith, we understand. Why? Because Christ created for the purpose of his creation and that brings us great encouragement. Listen how John Owen, an old dead guy, captured this as being fundamental in helping the elders of old, the first century Christians, and us moving forward. Notice how he says this helped them, this understanding of creation ex nihilo in Christ and through Christ. He says, before I go to conclusion, quote, if by faith we are persuaded Of the creation of the world out of nothing, which itself is contrary to the most received principles of all natural reasoning, it will bear us out in the belief of other things that seem impossible unto reason, if so be they are revealed." You see, before he goes into verse number four, the example of Abel, he lays down this foundation that Abel shared in what you share through the faith that God gifted him, that he is the sovereign creator of all things. And brothers and sisters, through ex Niliho, if he can bring all things into existence... And as we look out and we see, as Behe, Professor Behe said, the irreducible complexity of the blood cell, the eye, so forth and so on. Well, brother Giz, that builds confidence in us, does it not? That he is able, despite whatever comes, to accomplish his purposes for creation, including you and your place in his church in this celestial realm. Now we see at the base level what it was that compelled Abel, Enoch, Moses, Noah, so forth and so forth and what it will be to you. Wasn't something special about them. They they, they weren't special people. It was that God gave them this faith, this realization, this understanding that he is who he is and he will accomplish what he says he's accomplished. And so now the application is this. What is it? that you or I have fallen in that ditch of apathy and we're beginning to question, perhaps, along with the first century Christians, where is Jesus? What is Jesus doing? The day and age in which we live, I'm glad A.J. pointed out about the the, the tyrannical government of Romans 13. uh, The pagan worship was all over every street corner. and, And, you know, we're seeing some of the darkened understanding manifest itself in our culture. And some of us as Christians... We could be questioned to think, God, where are you at? God, what are you doing? Well, friends, He's doing the exact same thing He was doing then in the first century. He is saving souls, He is renewing darkened understandings, and He is equipping and enabling men, women, boys, and girls to take the little bit that they have and to press forward, be consistent and faithful. And allow him to sit and rule upon the throne and use their works unto his intended purposes in the day and age in which we live. Oh, God is on the throne, friends. And he still is to be glorified. He still is to be worshipped because Christ has not returned yet. He has not returned. He has created all of these things. And if he could do that and sustain it by the very word, the very word of His Son. Brothers and sisters, no matter what we're facing, no matter what lies ahead of us as the church, He will be glorified in and through us for the purposes of Christ. Amen. As we launch now into the rest of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, let us here in conclusion note that the inspired writer's main point here is that the presence of faith as defined in verse number 1 is the sole thing that can account for the behavior of all of those who He sets forth as examples and He commends for us to follow. We're here today to really worship and to celebrate on the Lord's Day the gift of faith that God has given us as His people in Christ. And so in that sense, We share with them the same witness and the testimony that they had all throughout the church's past. Do you see yourself in that stream? I mean, that's a a marvelous thing to think about. I always like to sometimes in our prayer to the Lord's Supper, I'll pray, Lord, in a spiritual sense, we are coming to to the table with the Lamb. He is at the head of the table. And right here, spiritually speaking, if you would allow me this, we're setting along with Abel, Enoch, Moses, Noah, and Abraham. We're all there. We're all there. Praise be to God. He's faithful to ensure that we'll get there. Let's pray. O gracious Father above, Lord, we thank you for your witness of these elders of old. O God, we thank you that you gifted them with the faith that had at its base the understanding, the correct knowledge, Lord, which enabled them to move forward in exercising Everything that you gave them in the employment of the work that you particularly had for them to do as individuals. Oh God, thank you that while they did not ask for it, while they did not seek fanfare, they simply were being faithful and consistent followers and believers of your faithfulness and what you can and what you will do. Lord, you recognized it. And Lord, they had a good report by your witness that they were good and faithful servants. Father, we pray that you would help us in our day and age. Lord, help us to recognize some of the things that we've seen from Ephesians in relation to our report. Help us to see, Lord, your sovereign work and creation. And may all of these things motivate and kindle our hearts afresh. Oh God, in this great wondrous calling, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Bless, I pray, Lord, every person in this place, no matter what sphere of servanthood they have under thy kingdom, whether it is a husband, whether it is a wife, whether it's a mother, whether it's a father, a brother, or a sister, a teacher, a student, no, no matter a co-worker, whatever it is, Lord, help them to see that, Lord, you have fashioned them. They are part of your workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Lord, to bring you glory through what you have done in their lives. You have given us all a testimony. Give us boldness. Give us clarity to share it, O God, in the day and age in which we live. And we leave the rest in your sovereign hands to do with it what you seek and be pleased to do. We thank you, we worship you, and we glorify you.